0: the very rules of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is how can change
1: the world okay. okay. state of things in of violence without object This is the typical violence of Violent because what happens uh, is murder of the, real, the vanishing point of
0: reality. Let's not have a Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry. Before we get started with uh, today's episode, just want to mention that I do have a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. I'm looking to have uh, a goal of 60 60 new patrons uh, before the end of the year. If you're enjoying the content, uh, you know, no worries. Um, Feel free to throw us a dollar if you have it to spare. But uh, really excited today to have uh, part four of our ongoing Super Guattario Brothers series, uh, looking at Felix Guattari's The Machinic Unconscious Um, We've got a uh, special guest joining us today. Um, In addition to uh, Taylor in in DC, we have Alfonso, so Alfonso, I'll let you introduce yourself today.
2: Cool. Um, I am S. Alfonso Williams, uh, an independent researcher based out of Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I'm not really an academic, um, just sort of of a guy who reads a lot. my hey, main plug, interest. plug your blog. Don't forget your blog. Yeah, gotcha. Don't forget that. Gotcha, gotcha. yeah. Uh, so theory and analysis all spelled out dot wordpress dot com so you can find uh, all my writings and and whatnot there. Um, basically, my my reading and writing tends to revolve around uh, psychoanalysis, philosophy, uh, media ecology out of the McLuhan vein mm-hmm. um, and some critical theory. So between all that, I'm always uh, ripping and running, trying Perfect to make sense of it all.
0: Perfect fit. Yeah, I I think I can pretty much say just about the same. Um, but I, let's see, DC, do you want to – I'll let you introduce – I'm going to let all you guys introduce yourselves today instead, oh. <laughs> instead of me botching it.
3: I don't think you botch it. <laughs> I will take the liberty. Uh, I'm DC Barker Tech on Twitter. <clears throat> I have a blog, Suedo Analysis, which – It was supposed to be pseudo-analysis, but I think I'm developing dyslexia as I get older, (laughs) because I'm a pseud. I'm training to be a psychoanalyst, and I see patients and work at a mental health clinic. And I have uh, a real interest in Felix Guattari. Uh, Yeah, that's about it. I'm Taylor Atkins and I'm also
1: kind of a para ad- academic like I guess I guess we all are kind of para academics which yeah. is, which is one of the things that is nice and unites us uh, but I uh, I principally at the moment translate philosophy French philosophy um, I my first book translation uh, is the book that we're reading today um, <laughs> the Machinic unconscious and so I've got some uh, I've got a lot of fond memories working on this this, this book. And, um, you know, I, 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 it was, it the, the, the first three books or the books of Guattari, Laro and Simondon, the ones that I, uh, have now finally can say I've, I've finished. Uh, those three were the ones that I wanted to do when I, when I first started translating. So the machine of conscious played a lot. Uh, I was, you know, blown away by anti-Oedipus and a thousand plateaus and, you know, it's, it was mind boggling to me that the machine unconscious wasn't translated at the time, uh, hadn't been, and, and knowing how it, it, it has so many resonances with, you know, capitalism and schizophrenia that I felt like it was kind of this missing, uh, I wouldn't say missing volume, but you could kind of say it's just like missing, uh, sort of, you know, after the Kafka book, the minor literature book, you could think machine unconscious like is able to tie, you know, their, their previous work together with the, the crazy shit they'll do in a thousand plateaus. So it, it, I felt like, um, you know, here there was, and what I like about it is particularly this chapter, we, we have uh, another kind of uh, direct articulation of what schizoanalysis should be from, from the, the sort of foundation that Guattari is trying to, trying to set and the different sources he's drawing from. And so I like that direct articulation of, uh, which we only kind of have indications of uh, in chapter four of Anti-Oedipus. It's, it's here that Guattari's like, okay, here's what could be a practice of, you know, uh, an, an, an analysis that, that wouldn't be based on the standard model of, uh, of psychoanalysis, you know, Freudian or otherwise. So that was a good segue, right? I just introduced myself yeah, and, perfect, and the yeah. topic, right? <laughs> exactly. so like,
0: I'm curious, uh, I don't know if this really fits in, this might fit better into kind of Freudian analysis, but um, are any of you familiar with the uh, comic book uh, Preacher?
2: Yeah, I am. I haven't read it, you but read I've it. seen it. You've seen um, the show. I've gotcha. barely
1: seen the show. I think I watched the first, yeah, I watched the first two episodes, Alfonso, so I mean. I've been barely. anxious to
2: want to wanna see like how it, how it proceeds.
0: So. Mm-hmm what i what i think is interesting in preacher is and i think i haven't read the comics yet i do plan on i just watched the show but i was watching it the other day and it kind of spurred this notion of okay so the the power that the preacher has is he has the word. So he's got right. essentially the word of God. He can direct individuals. Like, presumably this is like an enunciation, right? So that he has the ability to control. But so he says the word and can set off, you know, the character's actions, right? But he has no control over the interpretation that right. they choose to implement that word that that command that demand really i guess ultimately is that's better yeah that's better it's a demand serve god for example he says to one of the characters and which has like this whole unexpected <laughs> array of, of consequences um so i don't know if, where that fits in but that I was did. kind of on my mind looking at this chapter and kind of felt like somewhat relevant right i mean that it sounds like he he
1: needs to befriend or needed to have befriended guattari right because that's the whole thing he would have to become an analyst to be like more effective right uh maybe d c can jump in here you know just you know either because it's no longer the power of suggestion, but you know this i guess this interesting way of uh implementing a radical talking cure just with a word or a phrase right. as you're saying, and I think for Guattari, it would you know I would just point out maybe that he's 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 really trying to look for those spaces of freedom that we talked about last time the, right providing optional matters for, you know, for, for subjects. That's definitely DC's. Uh, I, I just, I would just think that that's, that's where he could come in as uh, yeah. with his practice.
0: And then I think to crystallize this for you, DC, if you're not familiar is so like, for example, one example, so there's a, a character that's having conflicts with his mother and uh, the preacher commands him in with the word, be patient and open your heart. So the character flies presumably to like Florida or something to go confront his mother. And he ends up literally, he jabs a knife into his chest, removes his heart (laughs) and
3: gives it to his mother. (laughs) That's certainly schizophrenic. Right. Uh, Uh, I think the, uh, Oh, did you have more? Oh, no, I was just going to
0: say, I think that just kind of, that's a good example of kind of the phenomenon where, you know, these signs are. Demands get, you know what I mean? That's a very, Mm -hmm. that's a very psychoanalytic kind of phenomenon, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, Wattari's whole schizoanalysis is uh, on the same register as primitive process or Freud's primitive process, words on the level of things. So schizophrenics don't perceive words as symbolizing or representing information. They take in words as if it were the object. Uh, which is how infants do. We don't experience words when we're young and have don't have language yet as, uh, as representing things. Cause we don't have those internal working models yet. We experience words as like abrasive intensities. Uh, we feel them in our bodies. Uh, th- though Guattari is trying to get away from the Freudian vocabulary, so he's not using uh, primitive process or, or primary process, or, and he's trying not to get too stuck in the body, which he says American psychoanalysts get a little you know like body keeps score and that kind of stuff but it, but your your little preacher uh, vignette makes me think uh later in the chapter guattari says uh if if schizoanalysis has a slogan it's uh do it yeah. and uh that's the schizophrenic idea so so much of psychoanalysis just in its clinical scope is <laughs> about moving people's actions behaviors into words so getting people to talk about what they're doing rather than do it all the time which can be really helpful you know if you have I work with a lot of adolescents and they they come to me and they're they're hurting themselves. They're self-harming, keep making these su- suicidal gestures and they end up in these inpatient units that they don't want to be in. You probably want to help them move those actions into words so that they're not killing themselves, right? But for someone who's not doing that, it's a lot more interesting to actually help people do stuff rather than to get people to be these boring neurotics that lie on the couch. You know, we see that in Anti-Oedipus with... Uh, they say a schizo out for a walk is a better model than a neurotic lying on a couch. So Guattari's whole thing is the unexpected, right? And that's exactly what this intervention here is, if the preacher is the analyst. Though actually, it's reverse. The uh, the guy who takes the preacher's advice is actually very schizoanalytic. And instead of representing and speaking on the line, the level of signifier, he acts out the uh, intervention in this completely unexpected way, which I don't know what effect it has on him or his mother, but <laughs> it's certainly more interesting than uh, getting into this neurotic conflict.
0: Yeah. Cause here. I think it's funny too, like even just not knowing, not even being familiar with the source, there is like this sort of neurotic element to this character that he's kind of like constantly nagging at the preacher. You know, I'm having this difficulty um, communicating with my mother. She's demanding and she doesn't, she's always criticizing me, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. I think that's funny that you kind of picked up on that without uh, any prompting, but also think it'd be valuable to get your your take as a as a practice. You know, someone who's actually practicing typically utilizing things that are more so in the in the Freudian sense. Um, mm-hmm. That might be a good sort of white wall to bounce off this uh, this concept of schizoanalysis.
3: Well, if I, if I had a patient who came to me with that conflict, even though I'm a little bit more contemporary psychoanalytic with this kind of limited clinical lens. I do like to think I embody some of Guattari's interventions. So if a patient came to me with that conflict, I would probably ask them what they want to do, which is really what's being repressed and blocked because people criticize us and we probably have an impulse and a reaction, but there's something that blocks us from using that feeling. If someone criticizes me, I'm pretty, because I've been analyzed, you know, I've been, been in my own analysis for quite a few years now, I am immediately aware of my impulse, someone criticized me, I have this reaction to be like, oh, fuck off, buddy. You know, why do I need, I don't need your criticism. Uh, what, what do you mean to me in my life? You know, but for a lot of people that feels too aggressive and they, they block that. They don't allow themselves to have that feeling, that thought. Uh, so, I would ask the patient what they want to do with their mom. And probably uh, the, the Freudian Oedipal one is, you know, Uh, would be like the patient really wants to have the mother and because the patient can't have the mother there's this frustration and maybe it's it's that frustration isn't gratified by like a sexual object and the social field so that way there's this constant conflict with not getting something from mom but the more schizoanalytic one would be uh well just get rid of your mom I suggest crazy stuff to people all the time. I say, why do you need to have this person around who's constantly criticizing? Why not just get rid of her? Which I think is something uh, Guattari often does. If you look at his anti-Oedipus papers, and if you read some of the biography that's out there on him, he has these kind of of like who gives a shit uh, uh, type interventions. Uh, which is not unlike Lacan, you know. So, so a friend came up to Guatari once and was like, you know, I'm really, I'm feeling so melancholic. I think I'm going to kill myself finally. And he said, Would you just do it already? Uh, but he said it in a way that gave the person the feeling that he doesn't really want them to kill themselves, but he understands the impulse, which is very like a very good psychoanalytic, like what's keeping you from doing it, and. uh, the the person uh, remembers feeling very relieved that Guattari said something <laughs> so provocative to her. So, so some things like those come to mind. I'll just share one more thing and then I'll see what other people think. But uh, this whole idea of do it, the schizoanalytic idea of do it, and the body and the importance of overcoming language, it makes me think of uh, one of Lacan's interventions I actually like. <laughs> and if you remember, in Anti-Oedipus, Deleuze and Guattari actually say Lacan is the first schizoanalyst which Nick Land says, you know, that's not really accurate. Guattari was under the influence of Lacan and doesn't really critique Lacan at all and blah, blah, blah. But let's see, Lacan had a patient and she had uh, suffered some severe trauma, maybe some sort of war crime situation or something like that. And she made some sort of comment and the phrase that she the phrase uh could be punned on to mean touch. Uh so instead of Lacan responding to her, he gets up from his chair and he caresses her face just very quickly and lovingly. And then the patient reports just feeling this relief of the conflict. So what Lacan does there is he instead of taking the communication on the level of language. He does basically what this person and Preacher did, where he takes the communication on the level of action. He does something with it uh, on the level of the physical material, the body, and he transforms what is otherwise cut off language. So, you know, Lacan's whole idea that once you speak something linguistically, it gets cut off from the body. We don't have access to it anymore. And he reconnects that uh, that trauma, because trauma is often thought of as like this these feelings and memories that are separated from the body. So I think that is actually very at the heart of schizoanalysis and very much, you know, where Guattari is coming from. All right, I'll shut up. I'm ranting.
1: <laughs> it's good. That's good. Do you have any thoughts, Alfonso?
3: Yeah.
2: I mean, it makes me think of actually the importance of, of what you do, uh, Taylor, in terms of uh, translation, um, in media because we, the whole essence of it seems what Deleuze and Guattari are oriented around is about repurposing the body, repurposing the mind, repurposing the environment um, to sort of endlessly form these constructions that can always be reincorporated back into itself when it gets out of control. Mm -hmm. So, but at the same time, going back to preacher, you know, it's when, when the preacher makes the utterance and his his agency is cut off at the point of interpretation. So that sort of tells you how important the medium that it is interpreting is in the process of moving basically the speed of thought. So when we think about getting our first book out there, you know, we're happy that it's in print and then the publisher pushes it through, makes it through marketing, now it's out there on the shelf. Right You also have to think about, well, is this only in the language that I speak? Um, if so, that's already a delimitation beyond um, indicating its limits. right So in order for it to make it past those limits, you need something to retranslate the material um, so that it can reach new layers of uh, beyond itself. So, but at the same time, we know that with language, it's not just a matter of, you know, it's not just a matter of Google translate. You can't yeah. Google translate the whole book and then push it back out. You need a, a subject right. to sort of come back in, be re-territorialized, go line by line and make sure all the nu- the hidden nu- nuances um, are there or retained as much as possible. And then when that final product is done, it can be presented and, you know, expanded upon. so.
1: I mean, I I think that that's that's great, and you and as a librarian, you I mean, I'm sure you've had all kinds of instances where you know someone may be looking for a, a certain book, but it's you know, but again, it's it is a question of is it available in their language or you know, I mean, there's all sorts of and and the Google Translate thing is interesting, right? Because that would be one type of translation, and for certain, well, depending on the discourse, but also depending on the need, what. There's, there is this question of like degrees of consistency, I think is what Guatari would talk about it, right? There's these coordinates um, that aren't just, you know, it's existential, real, abstract, whatever. And, and so we could have like a certain type of, and for the most part, I mean, like some of, the, some of the nuances or just some of the idiom would be good. I mean, I think that Google Translate does a good job and maybe overprivileges idiom. And I mm-hmm. think that, that that does hurt it in, you know, that does hurt it to a certain extent for philosophical concepts because, you know, but but you can always control for those as a, I guess the whole point being, you're right. There is a, there's a process and it involves different modes and it does require, yeah, this, this sort of interaction. And I guess that's, that's, you know, that's part of it. You, you're you're trying to, I I always think of it like the highest level, you're trying to convey a style. And so, you know, the text, the voice of the text, the, what, whatever is narrating that you can call it the author, but you know, to a certain extent texts do live their own lives and have their own tensions and have their rhythms. And, uh, like, like with the preacher, you know, the books put out there and, and that's, it it takes on its own life. Um, and I think that that's, that's something interesting about it. And, you know, looking at the text here there are, you know, there's some interest, there's some, there's like, for example, he talks about this notion of, of infiltration that like, uh, machine and machinisms like infiltrate through all, through, through these different dimensions and insert themselves and sort of make everything communicate and talk and, and individuate together, right? That rhizome effect. And I think it's that, it's that lived individuality of the book, um, that, I wish I would have captured more in this one. This is my first. And I see places where I'm like, you know, that could be better. And like the, you know, I, I try to give Guattari an, an, a sort of idiomatic voice, but then with like the infiltration, I put the French in brackets it was, it as no yotage. And I should've had a footnote because it doesn't, there, there's there's not really a play. It, 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 I think it was like, maybe like the bare skeleton of a, of a footnote that should have been written. And I just didn't, you know, so, uh, but the whole point was he, the word no is I translate it here as nucleus and you see it throughout this chapter and throughout the book, this, this question of the, the nucleus of the abstract machine or the assemblage. And sometimes I think I try to take on a scientific translation of that term when usually in like with Laura, well, when he says that word, I use the word kernel. Um, just it's become part of my like understanding that it was like, you know, it, it, it's more idiomatic, but, uh. It needed a footnote to say, hey, this word infiltration, it's it's resonating with this word I've been translating as nucleus. And so there's this interesting image at least that gets lost. It's lost in translation. And as you know, as a translator, you hate to you hate to see that, but at the same time, you you know, you obviously use that as like fuel to do better. You know, because again, we we were talking about sports earlier, and there's something about the cultivation of excellence that that I think is about that love of sharing um, access and sharing a means to participate in a chorus of ideas, uh, scholarly or 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 everyday, and and sort of have, you know. I mean, you can use the image of that kind of. You want to approach a velocity of an exchange of thinking, without thereby becoming a meme that parodies itself, or part that's that's already included in it, but you don't want to be, uh, you don't want to make a mockery of the text by doing it disjustice because there's this old adage, it's Italian. I forget how it goes in, in the original language, but it's, uh, to translate is to portray. And I think it's like, I think there's like a, a, one like letter difference between the two words, um, in, in Italian. And so like w- when you're translating, you're always, and this goes back to the imposter syndrome stuff. It's, you want to make, how do you know how other people interpret the text? Well, you have to give, you have to give it structure and rhythm and, and that's style, right? If if it doesn't have style, it could just fall apart and be flat and, or, or worse, or obviously be misleading. And so, you know, there's, I think that's, that gets back to this question is not just when the author writes it, but it, with each translation, the text, you know, it goes out there and it lives its life. And sometimes it can even prevent access rather than allow it. It Sometimes, you know, it can frustrate a reader and frustrate ideas. And then, then you really have betrayed, right? The original. So.
2: (sighs) It makes me wonder, um, like in Lacanian psychoanalysis, there's an emphasis on the analyst being sort of, uh, unbiased or neutral or or very, uh, detached. So the analysand is really in a way self-learning. Um, with mm-hmm. minimal inter- intervention by the by the analyst, but it seems from what you just said that there's there's always some sort of bias, almost even an, an intentional bias of the medium of translation in the act. So I'm wondering, in schizoanalysis, in in uh, in the work of uh, Guattari, does bias have a role, or does it even does it even matter? I'm sort of. I'm inclined to think that it probably doesn't. If there's always an opportunity to, to Mm retransform, and there's always a perpetual biasing going on because there's no cessation of movement, in a kind of a way.
0: That's interesting, Taylor and I. We were just talking about that last night, sort of, (laughs) right? Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I'll I'll pass it over to DC again because it's very useful to have a, a practicing. An aspiring analyst uh, with us and uh, have that perspective because um, we can only talk, you know, or I can. Uh, we will speak for everybody, but you know we can only talk about this theoretically. I, right. I'm I'm curious about when Guattari actually uses the word bias, which also implies angle and these other things in in French. He usually talks about it, or at least as in this chapter, he only talks about it in terms of like the bias of abstract machines, right? Or so uh, the bias is, is, a, is a sort of a, an aftermath of a process that wasn't necessarily predetermined. Um, it's just the angle. It's the like you know. It's the angle. It was trajectory. the Kleinemann, Yeah,
3: exactly. Or a vector. Or a yes, impersonal force, like okay. how atoms. And I don't know. I don't know enough about physics, and I don't want to talk out of my ass. But what a little I've read about physics. Is, uh, or basically just from Whitehead, Alfred North Whitehead, is that uh, particles influence each other based on really complex processes that happen, you know, below our experience, which is lines up perfectly. As you know, you can say a little bit about the translation Taylor, but lines up perfectly with the whole idea of molecular uh, that runs through Watari's work. He's really trying to capture inhuman processes that after the fact, produce uh, these little reflex arcs that are assemblages. He's very much like Whitehead. But to speak about the idea of bias, in many ways, uh, is is touching on ideas that contemporary psychoanalysis ends up running with in a very clinical, concrete way. I think the original idea for Freud is that, and probably Lacan, I don't know enough about the strict Lacanian stuff, but is that like the analyst is supposed to be unbiased. That causes, that allows the patient's transference to unfold. So like the less stimulus you put onto the patient, the more of their stuff is able to come out, kind of like you control, you're controlling for variables. And then they kind of project onto you, kind of like a Rorschach, but even less so like a Rorschach, because there is no very skeletal structure to project onto. And then you play the part that they need you to play, and then there's something transformative and healing there. Now, contemporary analysts kind of throw that away. Um, This will
2: be relational psychoanalysis, right?
3: Exactly. We get into relational and intersubjective psychoanalysis, which is the idea which just comes from media theory, basically McLuhan and Baudrillard and all that, that there, and even some Derrida, that even the most regressed patient, so to speak, like this, the schizophrenic who barely recognizes that you're in the room, they're still responding on some level to some other that they know that they need to get their communication to bounce off of. Communications always have another in mind to some extent. I think... Like when I work, I lean into my bias all the time. I have a very local way of working with people. I think, you know, the people who I help will stick with me and the people who who I'm not being helpful with will either work through it and that'll be part of the treatment or I will just honestly suggest that they find someone that works better for them. You know, no hurt feelings. Maybe I'm not the therapist for you. But I yeah. always lean into my bias, which I think is actually in there with Lacan Uh, And I think that's actually part of uh, Guattari's critique of Lacan, which is Lacan makes himself this uh, despotic signifier, he says often. (laughs) So Lacan's the master and everything has to be run through him. And he has the say at the end of the day, uh, he's the matrix of meaning. In other words, which for analysts that aren't as, I don't know how to even describe Lacan cold, (laughs) he feels very cold. (laughs) The matrix of meaning can be very helpful. You know, I, I work with that. I I have kids. Sometimes I do these little provocative intervention with my kid patients. I say, why don't you just want to do what I want to do? I'm the therapist. Don't you just want to do what I want to do? You know, I play with them because a lot of these kids are very uh, oppositional and they just want to defy everything, no matter how, how you try to be with them. So I just kind of lean into my bias. I think I'm feeling like I want to fight with these kids. So I'm just going to kind of lean in with that. And then that becomes part of the treatment because, you know, these kids probably fight with their parents, but their parents get all stressed out because they have to control their kids. And I get to have this fun and be, you know, just working with them for 50 minutes and maybe not get so stressed out. And that's curative. So I guess the short version of that is bias is always implicit in psychoanalysis. You just have to be monitoring it. It's what they call transference and countertransference. And you just have to learn how to use it. And to know when you're using it, that's in a healthy way. And when you're using it in a way that's not good for you or the patient, you know, right. that. and that's a lot of what the psychoanalytic training is, is figuring out, you know, how to use that stuff.
0: I want to come back to, I want to come back to this cause I think it'd be good. I want to get your take on the diagram for little Hans at some point, but uh, just to, to back up to the more theoretical register, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious. Taylor, I think in particular, what you're, you're getting at this, this kind of, I think is interesting is this, the Google translate thing, obviously it's very, it's like at the surface, this is a kind of like literal machinic process and uh, literally an inhuman sort of process. I'm curious what, what you think about that and like how this, in the context of this um, distinction between molecular and molar.
1: You know, I, I would say that uh, what I love about Google Translate is that you can, it, 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 theoretically, at least one can participate in refining its not not necessarily its algorithm, but but the choices it, it would make for certain words. So, you know, in that sense, it it is. If I mean, at first it was you know, first you have to think that you have a whole culmination of the technical side of the developers of the first you know, machinic translation programs and sort of the refinement of, of that technical side. But then with, with, uh, and I assume it should be the model for all machinic translations to have that on the other end, uh, feedback from the human, uh, the humans who use it, right? Or, or who, Think about um, its use and apply can apply themselves then to you know because I think for me that what I would when I said earlier to Alfonso about you know holding for certain constants like certain we know that like depending on the author if it's Kant or Hegel you know God forbid or Nietzsche <laughs> or you know uh, but uh, depending on the author but it, uh, you have ways of ways that certain concepts are always going to be more or less blocked out by certain phrases that may not be idiomatically considered by everyday speakers. So like, if you could hold, maybe not, if you could at least provide suggestions and even have like a little stamp, like, Hey, for translating Kant, you know, this fucking word is whatever the fuck. I mean, with Freud, it gets, it gets weird too, right? You think about Strakey and, and how he, he, he sort of, you know, and I, I harp on this all the time, so I'll just be quick, you know, how he puts, he provides these Greek, usually Greek uh, translations of of Freud's very everyday German mm. and tries to give it this kind of, it's really a stink, but tries to give it like a perfume of scientificity by like making mm. him more medical sounding or, you know, whatever. It's a it's a type of pretentiousness that, you know, uh, as LaPlanche points out, has to be, um, and LaPlanche is great here, uh, but it, this has to be pointed out. I mean, LaPlanche... Um, as a student of Lacan, um, I think he and Pontelis they did all they did a lot of the work of standardizing Freud's translation into French. And Laplanche himself writes about learning from the English translation of Freud and how it botches certain things, mm. and that those miscommunications, which really concress to use a Whiteheadian term, right? They really congress into sort of constellations of. You know, well, one could say the dominant, if not dogmatic, interpretation of the great words of Freud or Lacan, or um, you know, just to use those examples, but also Deleuze and any philosopher, any thinker um, that around which a school forms, um, which is you know completely interesting about psychoanalysis and it's it having schools at all. But I think that that's that's part of it, right? Is Laplanche could see that. Freud's mistranslation in English provided uh, certain things that we actually come to learn about psychoanalysis or, or come to learn about Freud's early work, which is what LaPlanche does by going back to the seduction theory and say, well, you know, what, what needs to happen with seduction theory is it needs to be generalized and it needs to be made more abstract and not necessarily have to do with what we think of as, you know, actual reality, right? That the, that the fantastical has has a dynamic uh, principle. And so Freud was actually right about the selection theory. He just took it too literally, he took it on; It was too on the nose, right? Uh, And we can see that because if we avoid some of the pitfalls of like translating Freud's tree drive uh, as instinct instead of drive, we can avoid some of uh, a certain if not sloppiness, then a certain image of thought that has to be sounded out like a hollow idol and sort of broken away from. And, um, you know, the, the real, I mean, the real controversy, is not the word itself? It's the fact that instinct already has, it has, we use it in a language. It already has all, all sorts of different images that are very uh, muddled and confused and are kind of analogized after the fact based on animals which is why Freud actually uses the word instinct when he wants to talk about fucking instinct. Anyway, that's a rant. I said I wasn't going to do it. I did it anyway. I apologize. But it it ties together. Yeah, yeah, it's the the translation thread.
3: And LaPlanche is, I like this little, it's either in the anti-Oedipus footnotes or it's in the Intersecting Lives biography. But LaPlanche was the only psychoanalyst that was invited by or that Guattari and Deleuze talked about inviting to some conference they were on about yeah, you mentioned psychoanalysis. Yeah. That, right? So cool. The short, the short anecdote is basically they're like Laplanche is pretty cool. Why don't we uh, talk with him? And Laplanche and Green are pretty much the only contemporary analysts uh, cited frequently in Anti-Oedipus. Yes. And th- those are two analysts who are these hardcore clinical analysts trained as Freudians who, turned into Lacanians, were were around Lacan for a while, and then broke with Lacan and then spent the rest of their career fighting with Lacan openly right. and trying to really quote return to Freud. So it's it's all very interesting in the history of French thought there, especially with psychoanalysis. So you
2: know, you know it was crazy for what uh, Taylor was just describing, you know, about the problem the problem is prob the problematics of translation um, of what Schrecky did with, with Freud's text. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we think about the sort of autonomy and agency language has, you know, as a, as a medium in itself, for all the distanciation that Deleuze and Guattari sort of try to put between themselves and focus on language, it sounds like language almost does exactly what they're talking about with everything else because you can constantly sort of you know the the metaphor and the metonymy of words you can constantly sort of sub substitute for other words and other linguistic structures mm-hmm. to refine and you know or make greater divides between the the idea or the concept and what it's trying to concretize yeah. but but it's just it's just interesting that they want to sort of make that break and focus on other um, other media or other phenomena that may be able to make those uh, perform the same actions.
3: And they, they invert language. you're yeah. picking up on a great thing about their, their universe or so speak is uh, the kind of traditional idea of language is that like, there's this competency performance and like writing wise that you have of a language like standard English or whatever, or standard German. And then there's all these little variations or incorrect versions. And that somewhere along the way, these words are supposed to really get back to a total language. That's a whole unity. And that, that whole unity is supposed to signify something. They reverse it all. And they're like, no, it's quite the opposite. There is no unity that we start from, from which language breaks off. There are only these local dialects, basically, that are material ways small populations express themselves and then philosophy and social thought gets carried away and thinks it's this totalizing, universalizing, uh, thing called language. That's why Guattari always fighting with Chomsky because Chomsky starts with this S arrow thing, uh, and this like, you know, language is this unified kind of theory and, uh, their whole thing is just Gu- Guattari and Deleuze and Guattari are, are really turning philosophy on, on its head, you know, Starting with part objects, that's their whole, that's mirrored in their whole critique of Freud and Klein when they say the the part object implies a whole object from which the part breaks off. Just like you're picking up on Alfonso, for them, language is just part objects. They're just machines that connect in strange ways. Like no matter how many ways you connect them, you're just getting these different flows, these different forces, as opposed to this other idea that there's a right way to connect things and then there's this wrong way. So they're they're trying to get rid of any preconceived notion of like a right and wrong, which is a really interesting project. It's like a, it's like a kooky or Nietzschean project, you know, Nietzsche minus all the kind of uh, right wing pitfalls where it gets all, uh, gets all kooky.
2: (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) I mean, the, I mean, just to say one last thing about, well, maybe one last thing about translation is and Google translate is one of its merits. Is it, always already implies including the the source text the original language from which it translates and I think that that's part of the height of scholarship would be to at least have uh, the source if not for example I mean because think about it like if you're studying Freud uh, in the way that we talk about him in relation to like Deliz and Guattari and like if you could have say Freud's original German obviously and a, a standardized you know but updated, fixed, you know, strikey translation, which you know, may or may not come, um, or just the Google Translate version, but also you had the French version, right? I mean, it would allow for, that's what a, a French scholar who's going to be working on Nietzsche and Hegel and Kant, you know, all these big Germans uh, that really forms... The really, it, you know, it, it, it informs the whole 20th century and you know beyond movement of French thinking. It's all about this German craze. We have this kind of German invasion of thinking throughout the highest you know echelons of academia. So like you need when 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 Laura Wells writing his essay on fucking Husserl or you know imagine Derrida too. I I imagine being you know needing. You needing the German, the French, and the English, and being able to like, if you had all, if but if you at least had the the, the source text, that would obviously make uh, any text I translate better. I would I would want the reader to have that if they if 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 there were you know room enough and time for the publishers to like you know because that is extra cost to the publishers. You think about it, right? It's it's um, that's already factored in. And that's one of the reasons why I like the Simondon was broken up into two volumes when in French it's, you know, it's one big book there, you know, so for shorter texts, obviously it'd be very plausible. And you'd always want to have that ability just for yourself to sort of see because a lot of read uh, when he's, when he's speaking idiomatically, you know, I'm, I'm trying to capture his humor and his turn of phrase, but at the same time mm-hmm. you have to, you have to think about inflecting it for an English, for for an American, British, just yeah. English-speaking audience. I think what's nice is that you see the possibility of mapping languages onto another, and you have that ability as a um, you know. But but also maybe it, maybe it incites a curiosity in in a reader who's French, you know, who's always had like basic French, but wants to like use Sorry that as it. a no, you could use that as an ability to like push themselves to, to work in other languages, which I think Guattari would obviously uh, and Laplanche especially would would fo- would encourage for for all of us, you know, including not just patients or analysands, but for you know, the the multiplicity, the polyvocality of of languages itself, uh, has certain unforeseen, unpredictable effects, right? And 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 really is able to create a higher um, pitch if you will or just a higher quality of, of thinking and its velocity uh, if that makes sense
0: anybody uh, want to ch- chime in anything else there because I, I was thinking maybe moving into that the design or the graph the Hans mm, uh, the Hans diagram right yeah I think this uh, so this is on page 175 from the book so I think this might be an interesting way because we've got we can get DC 's clinical application. We can get the theoretical aspect. Mm -hmm. I think this was really helping me kind of make the distinction between molar and molecular. What's the best way to kind of walk through this little, because this is actually mapped out as as a rhizome, which I think is kind right. it's cool, too, because these are notoriously... <laughs>
1: well, there's... I mean, in
0: that sense, there's no one
1: way to read it. You wouldn't necessarily right. start... I mean, logically, to, like, sort of follow, I think for us, we would have to... We would start at, like, maybe the top left or where, wherever you would... Because um, you you see how it's... It, it has an X and a Y axis. And so, yeah, really, right. as a Ryzen, you could start anywhere. And, and you kind of have to, right? Although there is also lines drawn uh, to... So like indicate certain if not causalities and correlations so you do also have paths to follow potentially everything seems to be reversible if you look at the arrows right so there yeah. is implied this a logic to it but it's it's not necessarily a one-way street yeah
3: you yeah. know you know i found myself when i first discovered felix Guattari being super interested in these diagrams, but not at first knowing how to make heads or tails of them, (laughs) despite, you know, being interested in his thought and practicing some of what he practices. And then I started, uh, let's see, not sleeping enough because I worked the night shifts sometimes and drinking a lot of coffee. I would just write and write and write and I realized that uh, the way I write is diagrammatic and that even the way I speak sometimes I jump around from topics and I'm just connecting ideas and at first the connection doesn't seem to be there but then the more you talk through it the more the connections seem to be there which is really how Guattari seems to write he rambles for better or for worse I right. mean I like it but I think uh, I didn't understand these diagrams until I started using them, making making my own diagrams on my blog posts. And I realized I've instinct to make diagrams or my wish to make diagrams was because I wanted to show thought patterns that were precisely like Taylor's saying nonlinear mm-hmm. and overlapping and redundant and couldn't be expressed well in language, which is what I think Watari is trying to achieve here. There's, he, he's a complexity thinker. And, he, you know, that's why he doesn't like to have his work edited. He doesn't have an editor until the last text he writes where a psychoanalyst actually edited for him. So I think he's trying to show us with the diagram how much just happens at once and how the more you unpack things, the more complex they get. But that's all I can say on like a second order thinking about the diet diagram. When I look at it, all I can say is uh, basically what's said in anti-Oedipus or a thousand plateaus it's similar as the is it the second plateau in a thousand plateaus uh, one or many wolves second
1: yeah well if you consider the rhizome it's as as the first because they yeah, call it yeah. introduction and it's like eh. you're right it's so, definitely a plateau. uh yeah. i mean but you know I, go on
3: well that's actually all i have i think it's just the diagram you know for freud is going to reduce things to freud's narrative which is based around freud's upbringing in vienna at the time or whatever and freud is purposely working in a limited scope because he comes from this sort of scientific background right which science is about uh limits to an extent and categories and you're trying to limit things you're trying to parse out variables you're trying to actually create narratives that lend themselves to that's what science is it's it's repetition the whole idea of creating a method is that you create this like little unit and you get to give it to someone else and say if you do exactly these things that I did here you'll get similar results Guattari is saying that that affects the treatment and creates oh okay we put it up I'm so not tech savvy I was like did I get this connected (laughs) no you're good man you're good yeah Basically, uh, I'll stop rambling. The, the, the the one sentence in anti that I think encapsulates the polarity in this diagram is, uh, uh, they say in anti Oedipus, we're not saying Oedipus doesn't exist. We're just saying it's a paranoid father's fantasy. And basically the argument is that Freud, Freud's theories produce in the patient confirmation of Freud's theories. So Freud acts in a way that he gets the patient, he leads the witness basically, and he doesn't allow little Hans to actually talk because he's just ruthlessly interpreting little Hans and just gets him to feed back to Freud the story, which is actually, you know, um, a pretty valid epistemological critique that contemporary psychoanalysis has been dealing with. I think Guattari's whole thing is maybe if we let Hans talk more, we'd learn more about Hans's process and we'd learn more about other ways that could have uh, aided Hans in in his phobia. That's what I make out of it. Very reductive terms, I guess. Is anyone familiar
0: with the, the actual case of little Hans that could give us some, some context?
3: Yeah, I can, I can tell you. He, uh, Freud was actually seeing little Hans's parents or something, but he, uh, he was out with his parents. And crap, what was it? He saw, he saw the primal scene, so to speak. Uh, he saw his parents having sex or some somehow aware that his parents were having sex. Maybe his mom would invite him to sleep in the bed past the age he was allowed to, or something like that. And his dad had made some sort of comment about cutting his willy off. And then somehow he transfers that fear onto a horse. He has like some scary experience with a horse. And then he transfers the idea that the horse is gonna bite off his finger. And then Freud, of course, says, you know, the finger is the phallus and the biting off is the cutting off. So you must have seen something, you must have felt this Oedipal fear that your dad was gonna castrate you for wanting your mother. It's been a long time since I read the case, so if people really listen to that online, they'll probably rip that apart, but that's the general idea, the basic idea. So Hans develops a phobia of horses and Freud's theory, of course, is that underneath the phobia is this real fear of being in danger from your father for wanting your mother.
2: I'm wondering, uh, D.C., let's say Guattari was brought into a, uh, a corporation that was having a lot of disturbances and uh, them not knowing who they're really bringing in sort of, you know, accept he comes in and he hears what's going on. Do you think, what role do you think the diagrams or diagramming would play in his um, assessment and sort of treatment of the situation, either by him or by the, the constituents themselves?
3: Mm. That's such a creative question. I like that. Well, Guattari did a lot of work with groups. He was a social activist his whole life. And even his early work comes out of this distinction. Help me out, Taylor. I think it's subject group and uh, subjugated group or something like that, right? Yeah, so you have, right, basically. I think his whole thing would be to figure out what people really want and how the language of the corporation or the values of the corporation, which aren't really their values, structures how they interact with each other that's a common theme in Guattari is that people really have the stuff that they want and they usually guard it. And then there's this whole socius out there that's totally gotten out of control and out of our grasps and taken on a life of its own. Not unlike how we've been talking about how texts take on a life of their own and we lose the agency. Um, And that creates like a language of itself and then actors or assemblages of enunciation or whatever, they have to code their own feelings, thoughts, and actions in the other person's uh, discourse constantly. Right. Right. So when you're in this like corporate environment, you know, we've all been there. I'm, a, I'm a, 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 basically a middle management, petite bourgeois position at my clinic where I have to manage some workers underneath me. I have to train them and help them not uh, to, to, I have to supervise them. So I've learned all this stupid corporate language, like point of growth, you know, which just means you (laughs) did something wrong, you know, or like uh, room for growth or feedback or support. They need support. That just means that they're not doing something right and people are mad at them, you know. So I think Watari would try to kind of cut through that bullshit. With his interventions, he often has this kind of no bullshit attitude of like, which is very Lacanian again, of like, if, if you're going to spend time with me, you got to tell me how you really feel and be honest, or I'm going to not have time with you. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's an intervention where this, it's in the anti-Oedipus notes. This woman is going on and on and Guattari is recording his inner feelings. And he says, I'm feeling so annoyed by this woman. So, so Guattari decides to pick up a book from his the stand, the table near him and starts reading it. And then she gets wind that he's just reading a book and she goes, oh my God. I realize I'm just talking to you like like you're not even there and I'm, you know I'm just reading to you basically I'm not really talking about how I feel and he goes exactly um, if, if you want to do analysis with me you have to actually talk about how you feel if not I'm just gonna sit here and read <laughs> hmm. so I think uh, that I hope that answers the question I think that's a great question
2: yeah definitely. Um, I mean because I'm thinking if we're gonna if we're gonna make the move from the you know from a personal analysis to larger, you know, more molar structures, I'm wondering, you know, where if the agency and the autonomy is there, if what you know Deleuze and guattari are saying, if the agency is there to be reincorporated and you know remanaged and, and reassessed, I'm wondering, you know, in the move from the personal to the the outward social bounds, you know, even to the limits of Political economy, you know, to capitalism itself. At what point? At what point does do my actions sort of not reach a point of reach a limitation? Basically, you know, um, how far can I go as an individual, or in diagramming our our actions as a group, to reconfigure the whole system? You know, is the is the coefficient of my subjectivity or the anomalous part that is constantly sort of readapting to situations when every subject in, in the set or in the group can do this and as we add more members to the set to create a larger group with a larger you know, coefficient of, of anomalous subjectivity. Is there a point in a molar structure to where where I reach the limits of, of what I can Restructured because I think there was a point I think where he he left he left France and escaped to Brazil because he felt that Brazil had a more um, amenable structure to his ideas. So him hitting that limit in France sort of signified to me that maybe within the box of ideas that he's presenting to us. That there is some sort of limit that we maybe can't transgress uh, somehow or some way. Um, so I'm more, you know, so just thinking about the diagrams and you know the limit of the diagram, the limit of reorganization and uh, deterritorialization. Deter-
3: de- and that's
1: such an interesting point about Guattari going to uh, to Brazil and wanting a certain reception. I mean, I I, I feel like Guattari must have maybe apart from his work with Deleuze must have thought he's kind of like a bastard stepchild, right? He, he doesn't really fit into, I mean, yes, uh, w- with DC, I, but I, I, think you, you would agree DC that, you know, Guattari isn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily have like a school, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, there, are, I wouldn't necessarily say there are Guattarians uh, in the way that we would say Lacanians, right? So he's, but, and then the history of philosophy is kind of like, who the fuck is this guy? You know, what yeah. is he doing? Then you have the scientists even chiming in like SoCal and Brickmont and they're like, this is fucking fashionable nonsense. Like right? Guattari's he, he, he takes liberties with using like these scientific terms. Like he's talking about in this chapter, he talks about like tunnel effects and mm-hmm. he's using, you know, terms like vector and the point signs and all this stuff. And, and they're just like, yeah, like uh, they, 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 they pick at him for the way he's uses chaos. And it's like, Motherfucker, that's, that's Guattari's thing. And, his sole reference is not science. It's yeah. it's sort of displaced throughout, it's not a meta discourse, it's not, it's not evenly between any one discipline at any one time. He's He is that kind of mad scientist to a certain extent. Yeah. And, right. and so, science, philosophy, and even analytic practice, I mean, I suppose maybe in France there might be, you know, uh, who knows, but it's, uh, he's kind of always then uh you could just say he exemplifies the nomad and yep. exactly. and he probably felt that i assume he probably felt like oh, fuck these guys didn't understand anti-edipus at all right <laughs> or you know and they're just making it into a joke um mm-hmm. that's kind of what he says in in that seminar the foreign consciousness you know he's just like uh people People were like, "Yeah, you, you think the schizo is the revolutionary? You're, you're, you're a bunch of idiots." And Guardi like, "Ah, you're, ah, you fucking idiots! No, that's not, you know." Um, so I could see him wanting to be amongst those who would be receptive to uh, to his thinking, and I think that's part of what he got with Deleuze, at least, right? You know, this this kind of interesting um, conjuncture and conjunction of these these two these two thinkers, these two um, with different paces with different styles, but were able to coalesce and, uh, and do something I think is, you know, it's I'm still
2: inspired by their work. So yeah, yeah definitely it's like it's almost like he he fulfilled on his own demand. You know, he he became sort of so singular that the attempt even in his own work and anti antivist and a thousand plateaus to sort of Break it into a, a, a discourse that can be understood in a sort of to, uh, totalized way, and you know he even does reference Archer in this chapter of the totalizing and the detotal detotalizing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, he he makes it such that even in his explanation, you can't really replicate it the way that I'm presenting it to you. You sort of have to dig and find certain principles that you know may or may not work within your context and experimentally try them and apply them and see what happens right and then out of that out of that experimentation you will get some results back and then you will sort of re-territorialize those results and try something else and try something else re-diagram and that sort of thing so but i but i can understand that people in wanting to, and it sounds like you know a little bit of Lacan and the the university discourse. So the the desire for the knowledge to relate to the uh, the object of desire, who is producing the desired subject. That's what these people that are part of the institution wants. But this is not how that discourse works. It's a very heterogeneous discourse and you have to you really have to take account of your own autonomy and agency and assess things for what they for what they are and how they present themselves to you and, and come up with your own solutions yeah I mean to, to talk about the
1: diagram uh, this the, the Hans diagram for example here uh, that we're looking at you know um, it is interesting that you know in the bottom right uh, you have the constitution of the phobic object. And you can kind of you know shame and guilt have become desirable, and that's something that they rail upon over and over in anti edipus right uh, how, how does how does the edipal subject how do we finally as the edipal subject when we kind of traverse the history of uh territorial machines and it's this question of the displacement of um of desire by way of representation et cetera we you know it it, it and it ends with with shame and guilt being desirable, so how do what, what is what is so? Here's a particular diagram of the formation of uh, you know the Oedipal machine. How do we get to 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 Oedipus in this case, right? Which you know can by by way of diagram provide Guattari wouldn't say universal principles, but principles of imagining a diagnosis or a, or here, just, just case How, how do, how's the case diagrammed? And I think that there's something powerful to that. Uh, not just, and it has implications beyond the analyst and relationship. It really, uh, it has that, that factor to influence us to think in all domains and in, in every dimension in, in this, in, in a way that could be, uh, it doesn't have to take this, this exact form right but 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 could take on diagrammatic forms and and by way of diagram take on a um its own consistency that um crystallizes right it's this it's this constellation of of these points and to have it before throwing it to coop since you wanted to look at this um this yeah i guess it's that movement of of how we get oedipus in in hans's case and how that uh, con into this phobia of, of the, of the horse. And what are the elements involved? What's their, their movement,
3: right? Yeah. It's not opposed. It's com- composed. It's a different level right. of composition. That's what I've always, I wrote a big paper uh, that got rejected from all the journals on <laughs> the dualism of drive theory and how we have to step away from that and move basically towards what I think they call dual aspect monism, which is like Spinoza, you know, that right, there's right. like one thing and then there's modes of that thing. But it's so silly to oppose life and death because life, transcendentally speaking, death is always within this bigger body of life. Do you know what I mean? Like, they, they they can't be opposed to each other. That doesn't make any sense. That death and life are these fighting forces that create right. this third thing. Like they are different compositions of the same stuff. So, there's I mean, this to
1: to to riff off the Spinoza reference. um I mean, this is where Simonone is writes some of his most beautiful prose in the first volume, the the main dissertation, and it's towards the end. It's towards the conclusion, or Shit it may be in the conclusion I don't remember, but this is where <laughs> I think it's in the conclusion where he uh he speaks about the the ethical act and it having the sort of ability to to affect and resonate with uh with other acts that's that's the and he'll oppose it to the amoral which you know neither composes but has the potential to to actually destroy relations the whole point being it's it's basically this notion of the individual doesn't necessarily cease with death, right? That there's something of the individual, the, their, their sort of conglomeration of ethical acts that, that is, uh, their life, not just representationally, right. But sort of this echoing of, of acts in time that redound upon one another and shape there's that's, that's where I think, um, you know, Simon shows his, at least influenced by Spinoza, but he'll also write some of his best critiques of Spinoza and uh, playing him off Leibniz and how uh, the individual as, as philosophically conceived by way of ontogenesis, how that, that, uh, that, that Spinoza and Leibniz both come so close yet, yet miss it by so far because of the way that they, either turn everything into individuals on the monistic level with, uh-huh. with live or, you know, deus siwe utura, you know, the, the, the true individual is, is, um, is God itself. And so like for, for, for Simon Don, he's like, look, the individual is much, much smaller than that. Uh, but it's not as small as, as what live does. So there is this, and this is one of the, this is the key notion. It's the very notion of middle and closes takes this up, but it's milieu, right? Mm-hmm. The, for for Simone Doan, it's about the individual is is the aftermath of sort of a super saturated, super tensed state wherein the pre-individual milieu and the being are still interactively engaged. And so the individual is like a, a consequence of this desperation of these, of these, of this interaction, of this supersaturated—it's a metastable like solution, so to speak—to to, to mm-hmm. the pre to the state of the pre-individual or the uh, milieu and those conditions of those super tense conditions of metastability. That uh, and, and 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 so with death, we can think that metastability is gone, but Simondon conserves for the individual this. Uh, this kind of continuum of of ethical acts that redound and have consequences uh, by one another, and you know, it's it's. I think that's that's where he also is thinking in a different register, uh, a theory of time, at least time for the individual that wouldn't be punctuated by death.
3: Hmm. You should send me some of that so I can include it in uh, the text that I was talking about that I'm revising. That could be helpful to go over
1: for me. No, that's great. Yeah, I'm. I'm really looking forward to the to the publication. It's going to be July fourteenth. That's when those two volumes come down. Oh um, yeah, nice, uh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, so that's well, that we could talk about that obviously another day. I I, I wanted Coop uh, to get your thoughts. You you uh, you mentioned that this gave you some insight into the molar and the molecular. Um, so you were throwing it back to me, Taylor.
0: Sorry, I got distracted. No, no, you're you're,
1: you're totally fine. I, I just, um, before we took the bathroom break, I was kind of, uh, wanting to hear your thoughts about you, you. I think you mentioned that the, the diagram helped you think through the molar and the molecular and you saw something in it that was, that was meaningful to you.
0: Yeah. I mean, it just laid out, I think in a very understandable way. It wasn't clear ever on kind of that distinction Molar I don't know they kind of just they sound so similar that it was just confused in my head so being able to see for example like the you know the top left corner of the diagram you have family home and then just make it really easy obviously like at the bottom right hand corner we have the phobic object the shame and guilt that have become desirable and like seeing it laid out in that in that physical sense kind of made had a higher resonance in terms of getting getting feel like okay what is this really getting towards what's this movement what's this relationship or like gradient so to speak
1: yeah i you know it's it it is it is interesting i i love that (sighs) uh that you know on the molar side you have at the top family home and then at the end of the chain you know these because because you see that the text below too helps explain it right a is the family territory b is the territory of the so these these different uh this kind of not necessarily sedimentation, uh, at least it could be temporally. Right. But you do see, uh, right. So uh, in the top, uh, left, you got family home, right? That's, that is the territory. That's the molar body. But then you have, you have the street on the other side, right? That's this opening to the socius, uh, the opening of the nuclear family, which is always already open, but you know, Freud's unit in many cases is tries to almost, um, sweep under the rug the notion that there is a street at all right that that the that everything is already included in the family uh so we can't forget that and of course it's in the street where the horse and the horse's face and uh you know that those images will concretize um and then all the way to the bottom molar side you have professor ford's interpretation spatiality of transfer so it's interesting that the way Guattari sets up the territories is, to some extent it has a logical temporal continuation, but on the other sense it's the, it's the difference he's always making between two types of redundancies, right? The, the redundancies of resonance and the uh, redundancies of interaction. And that is, so on the most, you know, resonant side, at least in the way he's using it, this is the this is the roll hill carve out for general for the general translations of schizoanalysis, right? That's the that's the generative side. And then for interactions we have the transformational schizoanalysis and and really schizoanalysis has these different dimensions, these different layers uh to to it, and they're not necessarily like two distinct practices, but they, they have different vectors and focuses. Um and so Freud's. I think Freud. The reason why Freud is is not just the phobic object on the lecher side, but but Freud's interpretations are um, are are resonant and along with his face, right? Is that and uh, DC again? You can you can completely uh, say some stuff about this, but that that kind of Freud's face becomes the and his and his discourse just becomes that which, as DC said earlier, already uh, Hans. Kind of tries to model himself after, or take on the the prompts, so to speak, and give give back to Freud a, a kind of the mirror image, right? So it's it's that that play of of those types of the first or the lower type of redundancies of resonance. That's that's a yeah, that's infinite infinite analysis, interminable analysis, interminable talking cure, right? Without without really. Uh, doing anything more than getting a client for life, right? Guattari scoffs at this notion that um, that analysis would take, you know, 10, 15 years. And I mean, uh, and, and beyond, right? Uh, I think Guattari has the same idea about, you know, he talks in Gangs of New York and Chaosophy about um, thinking about analysis in the same way we think about methadone treatment, that, the wrong way to to get someone off heroin or opiates with methadone is to just replace it and 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 make them have to take it every day. There has to be a weaning off. There has to be a, a termination to it. Otherwise, you just made a new addict, but they don't get fucked up, and the withdrawals are worse, right? So so there's drastic consequences for for that type of redundancy. And I think Guattari, is that's one of the the things to fight against for him is is, and this gets back to what Alfonso said uh, about bias, right? That the play of transference and counter-transference, again, DC, I'll I'll defer to you, would just kind of form into this endless game. And Guattari thinks that 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 leads to, uh, you know, at best a kind of well-adjusted neurosis. And that's Mm. that's not good enough.
3: Yeah, you put it well. I don't have much to add to that. It's true. I don't personally believe in infinite analysis. So... (laughs) <laughs> it's debated in the field nowadays too whether analysis is really quote interminable or not right so just what i find really interesting a lot of the critiques Guattari brings up which are dense and need unpacking <clears throat> they end up filtering their way into contemporary psychoanalytic discussions but without Guattari's name attached to them right uh, and I think, you know, if Guattari didn't say it, someone else would have, I'm not privileging him too much, because they're just the kind of epistemological, methodological, like conversations you're going to have to have as a field grows. But it is cool that Guattari touched upon a lot of them.
2: Uh, yeah, because it, that, the idea in itself of an interminable analysis um, in relation to an institution as opposed to, uh, you know, the health of the individual. Right. Because you can under—I mean, you can understand that an individual, as they as they traverse life, you know, they're going to go through different situations. That they're going to have, you know, heterogeneous reactions to the things they encounter that they have not encountered before. And you know, it may be for better or for worse. So the under the individual is going to encounter some anxieties and have to work through situations, you know, of their own accord. But I think what the institution of psychoanalysis should be there to do is to help intermittently and intervene at the points where the subject just can't, tra- can't traverse their own limit. So the, the, the psychoanalyst steps in, helps them make through this temporary breakthrough, and then send, sends them on their way to be productive, you know, until perhaps they encounter another limit to where they're not able to, to surpass that so it shouldn't it shouldn't ever feel that the, the the institution needs to populate itself for the sake of population because um because at that point then you're just you're distorting the whole the whole um structure of what you're doing
3: yeah it's uh nietzsche's you, you put it well alfonso nietzsche says something similar that uh hu- humanity makes the mistake of Assuming the, uh, the means to an end, they take the means to an end to be the end itself. Psychoanalysis or schizoanalysis is just a means to getting back to doing what you want with your time on the earth. And hopefully from you know, my perspective clinically, I don't need to see someone anymore when they're able to honestly have all their thoughts and feelings and then act in a way that's in accordance with what they actually want to achieve with their life which has a great relativism to it. You know, it's not this strict kind of moral thing that people make psychoanalysis out to be.
1: I think this is uh, interesting you brought up Nietzsche, to, just to like piggyback off of that. I was wondering, Coop, if uh, do, do you want to say anything else about Hans? Because I was thinking that the very last few pages he has eight aphorisms about uh, on schizoanalysis. And I thought that those yeah. that could be a good place to jump to. Uh, I'll leave it to your discretion, good
0: sir. I was kind of curious to, or wanting to maybe shift towards the sort of micro-political micro, micro political, political economy elements within schizoanalysis. One, just like on the note, you know, the discussion of, of Watari going to Brazil. I think it's pretty cool and interesting that he had interactions with Lula da Silva, who was just, you know, he was uh, president of Brazil after, you know, years after this, and has just been released within the last like year or so um, from like this whole this whole like significant <laughs> um, operation car wash and like there was this whole uh, U.S. backed element of of putting him in prison for these supposed <clears throat> like violations of uh, of corru- corruption and shit like that. Um Interesting. Just to give you kind of like a modern or like a context of who De- Lula da Silva is, he was like I think he was like a bus driver. Or something, um, and ended up being the head of the Brazilian Workers Party, and so forth. Interesting. The so thing it's kind of interesting to see on the other side of like the anal- the philosophy, the theory, the analysis that Watari's doing, but his also his activist side, and uh, I think that's cool and also interesting to kind of look back at his early years. He was involved in like a Trotskyist organization as a youth. That I thought I hadn't really known too much about until recently so i don't know where to where to start there as far as delving into that micro political a- element but
1: i mean i think uh if you if you turn to 188 he says some pretty cool things really resonant with what you were just saying i i, I was looking it's like what counts this is about five lines down from the top you said page 188 or 189 Sorry. Here is the no, it was 188, it was 188, yeah, that's right, uh, 188, my bad. Okay, I gotcha, yeah. And, um, yeah, so it's this question of the molecular politics, it, it you know, focuses on not just the generations of assemblages, but on their transformations and we need to understand how those transformations uh, are involved with components of passage like refrains of faciality as he'll he'll use as examples and it's this how do? and so he says what at the very end of that paragraph how do they and I think he's talking about uh, the how transformations, mo- uh,
0: uses of molecular populations and matters of expression. How do they molecularize the politics of all components?
1: Right. So it's this interesting question of a of a politics of of the components that, that assemblages would involve already, right? And um, and I think that's that's his activist side coming in, right? So when we when we diagram and work, uh, you know, we diagram a uh, you know like a Hans or something. We're also you know we're not just trying to sort of suit him or what i through, you always say, like, we're not making, we're not just trying to make people like good workers. That's not, that's not the point, right? The point is to, is to have at least a potential for revolutionary uh, engagement. And uh, that, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, all the analysis become, you know, sort of political activists, but finding what, what it means for the subject to, sort of cohere and coherently act in such a way that, you know, the politics of desire is at least available as an option for them to navigate what's their passion or what's, you know, what, how do they constitute a consistency of, of what it means to, to live well, or at least to have that potential. And, and, you know, one could say on the side to be happy, but to find out for themselves what that means and that it's not just a contentment necessarily. Uh, that would be based on any status quo. It sounds you know? like he's
2: he's coming back to you know the activism is the is the pragmatism of what he's of everything he's trying to work out to to bring another you know thinker that you work on here as a side tangent. So in thinking about the um, the activism as the the uh, pragmatic side of of what he's working on, you know that getting getting down to the everyday and getting the everyday individual to sort of, you know, work in these, in these ways. To what extent does that resonate with LaHuel and his philosophy in getting to the everyday? I mean, I,
1: I, I completely see Laruel and Guattari getting along. I know Laruel wrote a kind of mocking uh, essay, or it's not really an essay, it's more like a poem on Guattari and, and, and he's really mocking DNG, but, uh, you know, I think that with Laruelle and what he's trying to do with philosophical decision is, you know, uh, non-philosophy for him has always had an analytic side, and part of that is to not only define but also safeguard man's generic essence, which for him is immanence or the one. And I think that I think that I see that kind of respect with Guattari. Uh, they use different discourses, obviously, but when Larwell is saying that there is this sort of uh, you know, that philosophy to a certain extent is an unconscious concrescence of itself and of legitimizing itself. And he wants to provide the means to, to sort of bracket that transcendence and, and sort of safeguard eminence, radical eminence. And as he, de, I mean, he defines, he says, man, or, or, uh, he says man or science. That's, that's his and For him, science is, you know, is this blind, but sort of non-self-decisional, non-self-positional discourse that holds itself to certain standards? Philosophy never can, and philosophy needs to submit itself to science and uh, stop exploiting man's essence. And I think, in that sense, that's what Guattari too is is potentially coming at with uh, with Deleuze and, and anti-Oedipus going straight for the, um, straight for the most molar, uh, formation of an analytic practice as, as it's known, the most dominant, uh, at least, you know, it's, it's the, um, it's the old dog that needs to die. It has, to, or it has to, and it has to be reborn. It has to be re-envisioned. And I, and that's what I, at least I see Guattari doing justice to, um, to man's eminence in that sense. Um, but there's more I could say. I, I I definitely want to share the floor with you, great gentlemen.
3: No, say your thought, Alfonso.
2: Because I, I like to deal with a lot of you know paradox and deadlocks, and it sounds it really really sounds like that this is this is the sort of the the core of what they're dealing with, even though they don't mention it explicitly. You know, um, you know, because when I think about the 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 idea of transformation, constant transformation within you know sort of open but but essentially closed system. If this if the whole system of the parts of the system cannot be you know replaced with something something else externally that is completely new, then you know the whole the only way out of that is to constantly transform. But even the transformation you know in itself is not necessarily a solution because the act of transformation means that there's always some sort of contingent aspect to, to, between the subject, you know, and the environment and all of its, all of its context. And they do actually, you know, mention I think choice, he mentions the first choice, I think, that I saw the first time on page 154. So when you think about choice and, and, and freedom and being, you know, caught within circumstances, you know, there's always a certain, a certain, unknown a certain surplus of unknown that you can't you by definition can't see and so because that that surplus is always in your domain there's always something for you to to struggle against or something for the circumstances to struggle against and sort of what you're left with is well i can't eliminate this unknown so i sort of have to keep circling around it keep circling around. and, and lacan has a, a diagram where he talks about the death drive of where you know the the object is in the middle and the circle around it is the subject sort of not never never reaching the point of what they're what they're seeking right um, and that in itself you know again is a sort of a, another type of paradox so um, that sort of just resonates here with me with the essential with the, the totality of of guattari's work and especially with this chapter um, of sort of detailing you know the subject you can't remember the page but i think it's early in the 150s where he talks about the subject is is not quite located at the molar level and not quite at the the uh, the molecular level, but they're somewhere in between, but not necessarily as what you think that they are. Right. right. So there's always this anomalous quality to um, to the subject and, and, the, and the contents of of the, the structural system.
1: That reminds you of what they say in Anti-Oedipus, that they're there's only a fixed subject for repression and there's not a fixed object. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, this is why he'll kind of say offhand in this chapter, you know, like, can we imagine a society that, uh, no longer functions by way of repression or where repression is, is sort of no longer a mode of, uh, what he says, what he calls the militarization of human relations. So it's, um, this is where he imagines a new gentleness. And I think that that's part of his, again, that that's, that's part and parcel of not just the analytic practice, but the act activist side and mm-hmm. this, this proposing ways of, you know, modeling and diagramming, et cetera, et cetera. These mapping in a word, these, uh, these transformational possibilities, these, these optional matters for a subject, which I think is what I was thinking of when you were were talking about choice, uh, Alfonso. It's this this notion of a, that the schizoanalysis allows for the proliferation of these, these optional, well, he calls them optional subjects in another chapter, but it's, it's this optionality that isn't a, isn't a double bind. Isn't the false option of, of, of Oedipus.
3: It opens up all things, including nonsense, as possibilities. It's actually very helpful for people to hear in therapy. Recently working with someone in the the clinic, and they were so worried they're going to have a panic attack. And they're so used to clinicians telling them that that's not an option, that you need to use these skills, or that you need to blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, you know, actually, having a panic attack is one option. That's something you could do. (laughs) because that is the body's attempt at resolving a conflict, a double bind conflict is to go into this panic mode. We start to rock and we cover our face and we reject the outside and we try to get homeostasis, not unlike, you know, how Guattari and Deleuze talk about the refrain, the child sings the little song to himself. That's what a panic attack is in many ways. But Mm. the patient did not have a panic attack because in my hypothesis, being allowed to choose that as an option took the pressure off of her. That's beautiful. Needing to not have that as an option, which yeah. is so much of anxiety. We we pressure ourselves into having to do a or B, but my yeah. whole thing as a, as an analyst is like, well, you can do whatever you want. And then people, well, well then wouldn't that be mean? Wouldn't I hurt other people? Well, you might, it sounds like you don't want to hurt someone. So what, what's then is the option, you know? That's the actual Freudian idea is you you trace the thought back and you figure out what blocks you from allowing yourself to have the thought or the feeling. And then when you allow yourself to have the thought or the feeling, you don't have to get so neurotic about it. Then you realize you probably don't want to do that stuff anyways, because it's not really your desire anyways. Mm -hmm. So much of sadism and, and aggression and violence comes from, from trying to avoid just, just being yourself and having all your thoughts. But I won't ramble too much, but the Matrix is the perfect micro-political movie. The, there's a line in it where when they capture Morpheus in the first one, and Neo says, "We're gonna go get him," and Trinity says, "No one's ever done this before," and Neo said, "That's exactly why it's gonna work." It's just this epic action hero m- moment, but it's this idea of that whole movie is a that whole movie trilogy is about how you can uh, you can uh, achieve the impossible precisely by believing that you can which is a little cheesy and neoliberal but it is the idea of micropolitics which is you're supposed to do the unexpected and that's how you fuck the system up Uh, you know neo isn't the chosen one he's this remainder he's actually the discarded one he's this stupid useless glitch in the code that as the code turns away like entropy, it eventually creates a surplus value of code that is too much for the system to handle. Then the system has to rebalance itself. And then Neo does everything he's not supposed to do. And that's what ends up saving the entire world. You know, The architect right. is like, uh, I know what you're gonna do. You, the architect presents him the Oedipal situation. You either have to save Trinity or you have to save your friends. And if you save Trinity, your lover, uh, the whole world will get destroyed. So he chooses the wrong decision, and that is precisely what they don't account for. And that ends up spiraling, creating all these lines of flight, able to then save, you know, humanity. So it's the perfect Watarian micro-political concept that doing the unexpected is what jars the system so much that things shake up. The crystallized stuff shakes up. So... Which maybe we're seeing now with this Chaz or Chop. I think it's called Chop now. It's an experiment. You know, it might fail miserably, and yeah. or it might succeed, and something interesting will take off. So yeah, yeah, definitely. That's I think awesome. it's interesting.
2: Oh, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: <laughs> I was just gonna say that um, I was. This made me f- your example DC from <coughs> the Matrix reminded me of kind of the inverse from The Dark Knight with with the Joker and whenever he's trying to make the decision between like Rachel Dawes and, and uh, who's the who, guy. Well, who will become two Face? Harvey? Or, yeah, Har- yeah. Harvey Dent, Harvey Dent, Harvey Dent. Right. Yeah. And uh, the Joker tricks him into choosing Harvey Dent.
3: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm.
0: that's like an interesting, I think, inversion of that wrong decision, yeah. quote unquote, that you're getting at.
3: It's like game theory, trying to predict your opponent's move and then adjust your move in advance. Yes. <laughs> well batman's too molar yeah neo is this wonderful hacker and he understands things batman batman wants to punch everything right,
0: <laughs> right. well i no, i think the joker in the film is the more doing the more the more revolutionary pro project
3: and anyways yes <laughs> yes yes yeah. It's crazy how it all just, you know, sort of comes back to
2: choice, you know, even with, between the analytic situation, um, you know, and for all all the talk of, of the unconscious that, you know, both Hakan and Deleuze and Guattari do, you know, in their own individual ways, even within the unconscious effects, you know, there's, it still has to come back to, to whatever the subjective agent is to act on choice, to act on the effects of, of, of the contents of of what's being you know either pressed one way or or another. So, you know, what coming back to, to, to Neo you know, and the Matrix, in being reduced to choice, you know, for me choice is like choice is like the perfect quantum quantum solution out of a paradox. Because whatever 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 contents are being sucked up into the paradox, you know the Both sides or or all sides. The fact that they're all there means that they all have to be accounted for. So, in a sort of weird way, they sort of they escape contingency because they're all mandatory within the specific context. So, the subject, you know, in their everyday life, when they encounter this impasse where it seems like either or of what they do will bring you know a negative consequence, they're still Put into, you know, the Sartrean position of choice and having to force a resolution to go forward, with. and whether whether the subject is in, in 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 the analytic relationship, you know, or in everyday life, or you know, even as a structure, um, as an institution, you know, none of these none of these agents escape escape choice. And with Sartre being, you know, a heavy influence on Guattari, you know, it becomes heavily, you know, apparent in everything he writes that there is always choice in the background to be made when you encounter structures or impasses that you can't, that it doesn't seem that you that you can pass.
1: It reminds me of a scene in probably my favorite movie, uh, Twelve Monkeys, at the very beginning, mm. when Bruce Bruce Willis's character is. Uh, he's in prison for. I mean, they they read the list of his crimes, and it's basically like you know subordination shit like that. <laughs> uh, but uh, they say they they say the guards call him out to go back in time and observe and get you know information. Um, they say volunteer duty, and I just always love that Orwellian phrase. You know, you could say of. Uh, of a volunteer duty that, that Bruce Willis becomes sort of the, it's, it's only, it's only later that he gains degrees of freedom to make choices. And part of that freedom is gained by, um, but when he comes back the second time and they're throwing, they're like singing the song, uh, blueberry hill. And they're like basically praising him for coming back and doing all this good stuff. And he's just like, uh, I'm crazy. You guys don't exist and, and they, they they don't like that very much but it's it, but then he has to renounce that and at the very end his uh what, you know the his friend from the from the future but going back to the past is basically like you know you got to you got to shoot you got to shoot him you got to shoot the guy that's going to spread the virus even though he knows that that can't happen because he's from the future he makes that choice to do that and by doing so he witnesses as a child in the past his own death you know in the future and so is it, it a lot of it a lot of full monkeys does fuck with you that way with this with this p- calling into question of of choice and especially for the protagonist's choices and uh sort of this burden of the past that he knows he can't change and yet it's uh yet by way of volunteer duty is um sort of navigated um shepherded to like push in that way to make this impossible choice that can't occur and that was uh that was just my little spiel just on that phrase
0: i think it's interesting that kind of uh almost goes makes my mind go back to the the idea of the the preacher and like the the way that his the word is interpreted because i don't know if you remember this scene from 12 monkeys but uh they kind of tell they first send Bruce Willis's character out into the surface to kind of like a reconnoiter. Right, right. Like, right. right. He's kind of seeing what's available, getting samples and so forth. But uh, one thing he does is he gets—I think it's a spider—and he ends up eating it. Right. <laughs> and then I think he even tells that to the scientists later on. He's like, "Well, I—I I tried to get this uh, this sample, but then I ate it." And they're like, yeah, "Oh, that, that was <laughs> that's right. a good uh, that's a good." They like praise him for that sort of ingenuity. Exactly. Exactly. And that was the
1: first time he goes back, and he's yeah, like, "Yeah, But he, he complains. He's like, "Oh, well, you, you know, I you sent me to the wrong year anyway. You know, it's like <laughs> you guys, you guys fucked up." But way before I ate the spider, <laughs> potentially fucked up. Um, yeah. I
3: I gotta head out soon. I'll just read a little thing I wrote on schizoanalysis. Just it's in yeah. our shared document. Right. So I think it sums up, and then I'll I'll drop that bomb and then make my exit <laughs> i wrote uh, schizoanalysis is a pragmatic practice of mapping connections or diagramming real as opposed to symbolic or imaginary conjunctions which are contingently accidentally and locally produced as a residue by outside inhuman forces there is no subject for which becomes the object object of schizoanalysis rather there's the assemblage of enunciation which, not unlike Whitehead's superject, is produced as an effect of material forces, as opposed to being the presupposed unified force that perceives objective forces. So objects create subjects, subjects don't create objects. I wrote a little bit more, but I, I'll skip it and just get to the eight principles part, which I'm imagining you guys might get into a little bit more. So, that in this sense, as seen in the eight principles of schizoanalysis, schizoanalysis attempts to develop a critical epistemology of openness to reality. With this move, nonsense, which is the true language, to use that term sarcastically of the unconscious, comes to the forefront. And with it, all kinds of desires are permitted to flow unblocked. As Guattari rightly remarks, principles must be questioned, all givens renounced. And when something has happened, this proves that something has happened which I think is such a funny tautology, (laughs) as opposed to when nothing happens, this proves something happens in reality, something in the unconscious. So I just, I wrote a little, I think I'll put that up on my blog after, but I think that just captures some of the real core kind of elements of schizoanalysis. And I really read it as a critical epistemology. Like what do you pragmatically learn through experience when you completely unblock any uh, resistances that, this society has embedded in you or your biological structure has embedded in you Um, and i think it speaks to Guattari's idea that even that which seems super fixed is uh contingent so i guess i'll leave with that and uh i hope you guys keep talking and i'll listen to what i missed out on when the episode comes out
2: (laughs) excellent yeah all right man it was good seeing you hey have a great day dc
3: thank Thank you so much for having me again yeah of course it was a blast to talk and i'll talk to you guys all soon all right have a great day have a good do either either
0: of you want to pick up and run with where he left off or do we want to we can we can
1: reorient i uh i know there is the eight principles at the end or whatever you know which you know aren't really principles but uh i guess uh, did you want to look at the another diagram or did you have I I see you're on one seventy six um, was there was there anything on this page that you saw or were you just kind of
0: scrolling around I was kind of interested in this element of what Tari puts in here in terms of sense about the fact that this Leninist transformation and where he's diagramming kind of the move from Leninism into into Stalinism and that graph that I think is relatively interesting even though it was a lot more opaque i think just because i don't have the context in terms of the historical knowledge of of each of those things that are involved in in the diagram as well so which i think presents a bit of a challenge although it is a good helps to some degree get that distinction again between molecular and molar and, and kind of see that but i don't know if you have any either of you have anything to add on this uh kind of this micro political element or this diagram that I can pull up as well.
2: Mm, yeah. My historical, um, background on this, this chunk of history, you know, I hear it all the time through Zizek, but I haven't really had a time to to dig in and, and and really read about the progressions of these events. So, I'm mostly useless here <laughs> at this
1: point. I'll, I'll just say a word about the diagram. If you want to just look at it for a second. Sure. Um, I, wouldn't presume to like you guys, I I wouldn't presume to to sort of give a history uh, lesson here that I'm not, uh, you know, that I'm only roughly familiar with, but I did like on the, on the diagram, how um, we see that there's this religious transformation involved with uh, Stalin's rise in power and how that molar aspect of that that, that there is a sort of, there's a transformation from um, one type of assemblage that, with an emphasis more on this intensive uh, cult of personality slash leader worship that we see with Stalin, and itself has a role to play in that political uh, organization or just that political um, time frame that that period and. Um, you know, we all know the the stories about like Stalin, uh, about the like the pictures of Stalin progressively losing individuals in them and being you know people being like photoshopped out uh, uh, in, as as the history as a as a as a severe way of blotting out and you know whitewashing the the past, the historical record, and a kind of again, it's aurelian It's uh, it involves a, a kind of gaslighting too, although not you know, although perhaps fairly subtle too, but, but like just indefatigable, right. Just uh, an onslaught of, of meticulousness of, of sort of, you know, of, of erasure. And, and I guess that reminds me of, I assume, uh, only through my knowledge of documentaries, how cult leaders act, right. So there is this cultic as- aspect, uh, to the, to the transformation from Lenin to Stalin that that's captured in the diagram.
0: I think you have to s- see that, obviously, his, uh, the influence of Trotskyism, right, is gonna color this to some degree, just as a historical kind of material. But I think uh, maybe moving forward to the eight principles of schizoalysis yeah. might be a, a direction we can sort of wrap up on. I think that's great. I think it starts at 195,
2: I believe. If I remember Uh one ninety four. One ninety four. Okay, there you go. Is schizoanalysis a new cult of the machine?
1: <laughs> he says What's some interesting up? things here. He does. He he talks a little bit about about uh is, is schizoanalysis still continuing uh the Marxist dream, the old Marxist dream, he says.
0: Yes, up to a certain point. But instead of taking history as being essentially ballast by productive and economic machines, I think that on the contrary, these are the machines, all the machines which function in the manner of real history. And so far as they constantly remain open to singularity traits and creative initiatives. Maybe I should carry that out to this other.
1: No, t- I, I was just thinking that, 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 I would modify the translation today that it's, it's more <laughs> like, it's more like he's saying, I think that what, functions in the manner of real history insofar as they constantly remain open and open to singular traits and create initiatives, are machines all machines right i think that's this this isn't a good translation here but it's it's really yeah it's really more about um it's not just productive and economic machines that we need to to concern ourselves with those are important and those are definitely essential to marxist analysis um but but watari wants to broaden the very notion of machine, I think that's why he, a lot of times he'll say machinism um, to to sort of add this extra dimension of you know not just not just typical machines and or in any
2: typical sense of the way we think of the of the term. what do you think um, I mean, we're all seeing the way social media plays a role in in what's going on you know with black lives matter. Um, but in terms of I mean, beyond the point of simply disseminating information and capturing, you know, essential events on film to be brought up later as, you know, true events that did happen right. um, as proof of injustices. From the lens of Guattari could social media and the cell phone be deterritorialized out of these two particular roles to maybe add another element that could be utilized for, um, productive, productive forces.
1: I mean, I think that's a great question. I think Guatari would, would just point to the, I mean, the jump and the technological advance from cell phones, you know, 15 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago to what we can do now Mm -hmm. with them and just their, uh, and just the seemingly unlimited capacity for more and more powerful phones with more and more uh, connections more and more you know I think Watery would love the app, the whole notion of, of a cell phone app. <laughs> um, he was always interested in widgets and uh, and sort of you know a sort of this, this open ability to to modulate, modify that the cell phone, as this very powerful instrument can remains open to. And because it, and in that sense, we have to use a certain technological imagination and that's part of what's going on. But we, but then on the other side, there is, you know, there is the, the software and the hardware dichotomy and, um, but just the very fact that it's capable of such intense and, um, multi-dimensional evolutions in, in a decade. It's, um, you know the, a portable computer slash, um, you know video camera slash, you know etc. etc. It it its functions could and and to get to your point, uh, Alfonso, I, it has hmm. political it has political dimensions too, right? That, yeah. um, that and and the very diversification of different forms of social media too. I think Guatieri would would be supportive of Because Pre- precisely it's it's that. Velocity of exchange, you know, um, that Guattari would would see a revolutionary power in, and so I mean, going viral and and like the the broadest sense, uh, the ability to and the ability to participate in that community and and those communities and and not just you know produce one's own content, but even to you know to be shaped and produced by it and to be to be to have the accessibility, I think, to something Guattari would, would and, and, and to that extent too, uh, you know, I think Guattari would, would want to see all sorts of possible designs for phones that would also be more friendly to, um, you know, certain, certain, uh, certain individuals with various disabilities. You know, there's that, that type of accessibility too could, could, and we could say it's user friendliness in the strictest sense of the word, could could also be open to more accessibility,
2: you know, for for individuals. So yeah, because I'm, I'm looking at uh, principle number two. You no know, quote. When something has happened, this proves that something has happened. And he was on to say, this is a fundamental, tautology that marks an essential difference with psychoanalysis, whose basic principles, whose basic principle, expects that when nothing happens, this proves that something happens in reality. Something in the unconscious. If he's relying on the essence of of the act um as
1: opposed to i mean part of it he, he calls the psychoanalyst out for as he says in the very next sentence this politics of, si- of silence and unlimited expectations and he mocks this idea that psychoanalysts would have have he uses the image of, of the red phone carter picking up the red phone in the in the oval office and he's got a direct line to brezhnev right that's uh, that's probably a dated image for uh, <laughs> for, for the youngins, but it, it's 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 this interesting mockery of psychoanalysts that they're always in touch with uh, the unconscious. And for that's what we need to protect. Really, is a certain autonomy of, of the assemblages of desire and uh, and foster. And this gets back to the optional optional matters for subjects, and to foster the the ability for for the analysand to remain open to. Even asking their own questions, providing their own solutions, diagramming their own problems. I mean, to, to give them even the, 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 the merest tools for such a, a way of living and thinking and being and feeling is, you know, uh, I think that's that would be a principle of schizoanalysis.
2: Yeah, that definitely sounds like it falls into, into number three. Uh, the best position for accessing the hidden place of the mm-hmm. unconscious does not necessarily consist in remaining seated behind the couch. So... Again, getting moving from the, the the personal analysis into the world to to take stock and account of all of the other possible contingencies um, beyond the sort of isolated isolated space, because that's really the space where all of these all of these happenings are are occurring. But psychoanalysis tries to take the subject out of that. To sort of reduce all of those contingencies temporarily, to sort of isolate it down to its uh, most essential bits, to only work with those particular elements, and then hopefully, um, in dealing with that in processing that, once they go back out into all of those contingencies, they will hopefully be a, a more uh, functional person. But it sounds like you know Guatteri is is sort of saying the opposite. Well the essence is not to remain here, you know, in an interminable analysis because, you know, like as if if the person was some sort of purity that you don't want to sort of reinfect, you know, that you need to be exposed to all these elements so that you build up a tolerance so that you can subsist. Um, So the idea of moving beyond the couch into the world, taking stock of the world, um, is an important part of uh, of what it means to to understand what non subjectivities how non non-subjecti- non subjectivities are acting back on you in similar ways that you don't necessarily understand or that the analysts can understand in in the room and on the couch.
1: You know, I really think that um, Aristotle had a point with the Peripatetic school. Like, there's something about thinking and walking that en- engaging your, your body, at least in the most basic activity, getting the blood flowing, um, getting the, getting your, changing your respiration rate, changing your, um, and being out right on a stroll. Um, you know, the Schizophorst stroll, uh, as DC brought up earlier. So, you know, in that sense, it reminds me of just kind of thinking about Guattari talking, you know, um, I forget where he, where it is. He says this, but he's, he's like, you know, if I have a, if I have a patient and they're from a, you know, uh, say, you know, an affluent background and they've worked a desk job or whatever, take them out, uh, on a bike ride. Um, on the other hand, someone who's, whose background is say menial labor and whatever you, you get them writing poetry or songs or, or learning a musical instrument. Right? So there's, there's something interesting about where Guattari is like, okay, so what, what optional matters can I provide for the subject? What 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 universes of value haven't been necessarily tapped into? Not not necessarily just just the just the the opportunity to experience these things that haven't been really a part of their everyday life. And so I think that's that that type of just uh, anecdote about Guattari bringing in sort of maybe never really occur to that person to to involve themselves in, um, it, it's not necessarily going to substitute be substituted for the talking cure, but it'll work in conjunction with it. So right. uh, that's that's why yeah. I like that that one. Yeah, it sounds
2: different. <laughs> I mean, that leads right into number five, important things happen. Important things never happen where we expect. So, again, bringing in what you just said, the element from that field to sort of shake things up to, be the 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 contingent the contingent element that mm-hmm. or starts the realignment toward um, toward a line of flight that that the subject can use to um, to get to where where they need to go.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's great. He even says, and I, I know this is a very long sentence, but he just basically says, the schizoanalytic <laughs> process, uh, the, its fruitfulness is you know based on the this heterogeneity of of the rhizome that's that's made possible, um, or that's allowed to be tapped into by by subjects, and connecting up all these diverse points that seemingly were isolated, but already uh, p- that potentially had the the keys to um, to a certain to, uh, to to increasing the degrees of freedom um, and the the access to desire that had been either repressed or warded off or, or laid dormant for, you know, for a given person. You
2: know, on number seven, he says, he says, nothing is ever given. You know, no stage or complex is ever crossed or ever surpassed. Everything always remains on the plate available to all the reusages, but also to all of the downfalls. So, you know, again, going back to what we were talking before, you know, the, it sounds again like this, this element has to remain within this certain the certain paradox it has to remain right in the middle so it can go either or because it must in order to be able to do or function in the way that we want it to so if it's going to function you know in its own or through another medium you know who may be the subject or whatever if it's going to function within the realm of autonomy and agency then it has to it has to have the possibility of going either way or always um, to be to be um possibly recorrected or reoriented at a different point so i mean he it sounds like when he was when he was outlining these he was really on fire uh, yeah this is i mean this is some of the
1: pithiest writing, I would say, for Guattari here. I mean, he even says these are aphorisms, right? So there's something you brought up Nietzsche earlier. So there's something Nietzschean about about these. Um, you know, it's 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 not as beautifully poetic as Nietzsche, but but it packs a punch. And um, I like this notion of everything remains on the plane, uh, which they'll they'll talk about the plane of eminence and what is philosophy, and uh, you know, the plane of consistency. They may already talk about it in and uh, a thousand plateaus. They probably do. Uh, I believe so. But, you know, this notion that one doesn't necessarily get over the Oedipus complex. One has to be shown how such a complex was merely a kind of distortion of desire through these contorted, in these contorted ways and, and results of, you know, a certain conditioning, one could say, I mean, in the broadest sense, a certain conditioning by all sorts of different all sorts of different assemblages, from the family to, you know, the state, the army, the classroom. Bo talks about these um, a lot, you know, uh, in his in his work and more from this from this vantage point. And so I think that, yeah, for for Watari it's it's like showing how you know one was never in the Oedipus complex. It's it's um, I think that's the anti. There's a there's a sort of anti and anti to to Oedipus, that has to be, but it has to be diagrammed. It has to be shown. It has to be possibleized, and it has to, you know, uh, immediately be in conjunction with a machine that is both revolutionary and analytic at the same time. That's that's the. I think that's where the the eighth principle is. I was just looking at that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's. I mean, that's that's the way to end. Is you know, any principle idea must be held suspect. There has to be a collapsibility. Schizoanalysis has to allow itself that collapsibility. And Freud was very good on this in his early years when he was, when he was really working on like the scientific postscript and these kinds of things. He's, he's aware that there's a certain speculation involved with, uh, with psychoanalysis and we have to allow ourselves to, we have to not only grant ourselves the freedom to, To sort of use speculation and its consequences and rely on them, but we have to also uh, not get too, not cling too 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 tightly to certain notions that would overdetermine analysis. And 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 you know, as we see as he gets older and as he starts to have a school and also starts to have these schisms within his school, you do see him uh, kind of circling this desire of well. I have to bequeath psychoanalysis as, you know, uh, a universal set of principles for, for the future, for the future analysts. And I think that's where he loses that flexibility. And I think Oedipus provides the kind of narrative, the meta narrative that has, it's like the Archimedean uh, lever, right? It's able to sort of move anything from this one vantage point. And that's, but that, but that kind of millstone that grinds everything down into, into Oedipus and flattens everything, it's like it's too successful at what it does. <laughs> and Freud didn't realize it. And also Freud didn't have the same politics. We have to we have <laughs> to you know, and I think that's important in, in a lot of sense, if we read the history of psychoanalysis with like starting with Freud and then the break with Jung, etc., we mm. do see kind of these schisms constitute uh, and in some ways political disagreements, uh, at, at least at right. heart, micro-political,
2: uh, at least. You know, it almost seems like what you just mentioned, the, the, the point at which Freud is sort of you know, having to constitute his, his ideas into transmissible universals that yes. other people can use. You know, that's the same point at which Lacan jumps in to sort of mm-hmm. you know, give his, his version, his spin on that, and then at the end of his life, you know, in the 70s towards uh, towards 1980, you know, he starts to make the move from linguistics towards mathematics, you know, mm-hmm. with the mathings and, and the discourses and all that. And then at the same time, you know, that's when Guattari jumps off Lacan's ship right. to make his own, you know, formulations to lead to schizoanalysis, which is this, which sort of, is encapsulated in this eight principle that, you know, we're not going to lead to a sort of definite end. We're always going to leave room for contingency to where we can back off and reformulate and go into um, another another direction.
1: Yeah, so. I, 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 and I love that his his point is like, you know, with this last principle, when schizoanalysis realizes that that its nature is precarious, uh, that it's that mm. it's that it is subject to collapsibility. That's when we need more theoret- theoretical elaboration, and that's where we have to be more audacious. We have to take more risks. So there is a, and the taking of risks, I think, for him is, is eschewing, avoiding what Freud, sedimented upon. You know, he settled on. I mean, it reminds me of Nietzsche's critique of Freud, and is at least in the, in the late stage when he's, as you said, trying to, deliver a kind of wholly constituted, uh, theory and practice of the mind of the unconscious Nietzsche would say well Freud the only thoughts that are worth the time thinking or that really have value are the ones with light feet and you kind of you're sunk in the mud you've lost lost the the metastability and the nimbleness which to a certain degree i think Guattari would argue that um that that, that was inevitable given uh, not just Freud's politics, but also his his demeanor. You know, I mean, DC talked about how he treated little Hans and and kind of browbeat him. And it, it's interesting, right? Because Freud usually didn't work with, work with children. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, that's where I think Klein is a corrective. And for her, you know, merits and faults, she uh, at least had the idea. But, I mean, Deleuze and Guattari also kind of fault her for... Because I, be- I believe she also does some work with Hans... Um and they may talk about it in Anti Oedipus, but you know, she's she's doing some of the same things as Freud, but perhaps without the the overbearing dominance of of the primordial father, but perhaps with a, a lighter mother's touch. And mm-hmm. um and you know, and so she does have she one can't say she didn't have success with uh working with children, just that she too, you know, falls into some of the same some of those same pitfalls of you know, of, of, you know, trying to turn everything back into mommy, daddy. Um, that's, yeah. that's really what salts are for is that it's no use talking about part objects if in the end of the day, they all flow back into, into, into a mommy, daddy, me triangle, that that triangle is always already open to, to the socius and to societal uh, influences and is inherently social desire is the social right is what guattari's is saying. And it's only by by really coordinating desire that we turn the nuclear complex into, uh, a, a, and the Oedipal complex, consequently into the sort of framework for thinking desire. And so it's actually a way of, it's, I mean, in M1000 plateaus, they'll talk about zones of power are delimited and defined by what they allow to leak, what desire they allow to leak from uh, from their structures. And so you can see that in, in strengthening the ego one also is really strengthening the bedrock of analysis on the family and the family alone to the detriment of some of the other elements, and I think that that's. I mean, that again is just another way of summing up the. If anti-Oedipus were a slogan, it you know like a like a like a cry. Um, <laughs> it would be a refrain. Yeah, a refrain. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to add anything, Coop? I. Uh, I, I mean, I. I'd, I'd love to.
0: Did you have a, a favorite principle, or uh, was there something that struck you in these last pages? Nothing in that has a great overlap here, but I am kind of curious. In I forget where in the text he says that schizoanalysis is is not merely language games, and hmm. uh, you know me with my avid shit posting, I'm kind of curious: is shit posting just a language game, or is there I don't know? Is there some kind of like metastasis? No, no, is there like so. a, can you achieve just by like this surplus signification or production that kind of metastasizes like the whole, the whole kind of symbolic order uh, of capital or whatever, like desiring uh, production, or is that is that a reification uh, to keep producing, right. like playing with these, playing with sign, tearing them down, recombining them and speeding up that process. So on that side, That's one element of it, but there's, I think, an interesting dichotomy in the sense of you have this molar idea of like the meme. And then its expression that can get picked up at the molecular level and back in, in that kind of feedback circular loop that I think is, is somewhat in- interesting. If it's not you know necessarily earth shattering, but I I don't know that's an interesting.
1: I, I mean I I would place. just say that uh, that you can't reduce your post into language games <laughs> alone. I I think that the language games he's particularly talking about is is what we've been talking about is the interminable analysis the the oh, okay. mirror, the you know uh, because. I think the whole point is language games don't necessarily aren't necessarily defined or have anything to do with their, their effects. Um, it's kind of the question, you know, is when a standard comedian does an hour of, of, of his jokes and stories and weaves this uh, takes us on this sort of ride of hilarity. I mean, like it's not, he's not just doing language games, right? It's there is something produced. There is effect. I mean, I mean a, a good comic is kind of judged more or less rightly by the reactions of his audience and potential audience. And I think that that's why Andy Kaufman is so interesting because with his performances, I I think that he wanted to think of himself as, yes, there is laughter, but he's not necessarily doing quote unquote, doing comedy. Uh, There's something performative that goes beyond the mere, comedic sphere. And the best comedians do this in their own ways. And there's always that meta aspect, but yeah, I mean, there's something to that. I mean, Annie Kaufman didn't play language games, so it's, it, it, that's why I, as I said before, like some of your best posts, the ones that make me uh, laugh the most are not necessarily the two the same thing. It's not just comedy. Some of your dumbest posts make me laugh really hard, right? So, like, they're, they're uh, but but attached with that is like a little surplus of of thinking. Now a new line of, of thought is now you've now you've kind of in, inflected my sort of my neural pathways and shit. And uh, and I think that's the best reaction to have to them, even if it's visceral rejection. You know, that's that's one only one side, uh, only one dimension of shit posting. And it's not necessarily the dominant one, um, and it, obviously it, it it reflects back on the quality of the uh, antenna and style of the of the ship post. Um, but yeah, it's a you know it's a witch's broom.
0: I think it's interesting, especially like even in the context of analysis, right? Because it's, it's almost like an, a dialogue with like the the patient having a dialogue with itself. Because you do have the disembodied analyst on the you know what i mean because i'm if i'm posting in some circumstances i am maybe intending to reach one specific person or a group of people right but oftentimes it's just a it's thrown out into the right. into the ether right with no intended audience so i think that's kind of an interesting looking at that through the dialogue of analysis i think is super interesting
1: well i mean it's i mean that's why we on the first podcast we ever did i said it was it was more composting than ship posting right because it is literally <laughs> dissemination you're literally throwing out um these 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 seeds these semen seeds
2: oh uh, i mean i would say i mean there's i, I definitely think there's potential in ship posting and memes i mean because the fact that the whole generation the whole generation speaks this language um and uses right. uses all these these media um to to transmit these this, this data and especially you know even the phenomenon of, of using it to transmit um you know philosophical ideas, complex ideas. Right. You know, the fact that it can be distilled again, because we're dealing with language and you know the metaphor metonymy you know, how far is an idea away from another idea? You know, it's almost like there is no distance. So can a whole, you know, five hundred page text be distilled into a meme? Well it's your your obvious answer is going to be yes but then there's still a small surplus of um well no let me reverse that your obvious answer is going to be no right but then there's small there's a small amount of room to say well maybe because you know ideas you know are not are not subject to a specific amount of words or a specific type of discourse so you know there there are innumerable ways that you know an idea can be transmitted and through a meme and shit posting is, is is another one of those. So you know and again to bring in the, the comedy aspect, you know, comedians are all about timing. Right. You know, timing is another factor that can be very powerful. So when the right post or the right meme is brought in at the right time under the right circumstances, you know, it can hit the consciousness of people um, to make them want to you know either share it or communicate it to somebody else and then that's essentially what the whole viral aspect is so it's all about the right content at the right time which produces the right effects um, which has resounding uh reverberations you know all through society so there's
1: there's enormous potential there i agree yeah it's about a, it goes back to the velocity of thought that we yeah.
0: mentioned earlier taylor since you have to go do you want to just uh, throw out your uh, where we can find your stuff again.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, and I just want to thank uh, Coop as always. I want to thank you for having me on, Alfonso. I'm so glad that you joined us today. I know we could talk for, for <laughs> yeah. many more hours, yeah. and we'll we we should uh, we should have you back next time if you'd like to participate again.
3: Sure, absolutely.
1: Nice. Um, yeah. So, and I'll, I'll I'll all three of us. I'm sure we'll all. Uh, uh, first, we could also extend to Alfonso. Um, he should join the, our little Twitter Hello, DM DC, group. Yeah. Cause uh, right now DC, Coop and I, we, we have a little group chat. So we'll add you to that yeah. just to keep you in the loop. And um, I assume we'll, this is just kind of like, I guess, a way of closing things out. Coop, I, I'm sure you'll have information for a good time to, to, you know, maybe two, three weeks, four, if need be, you know, um, we can come back next month and we'll, We'll we'll figure that out because um, we'll want to do the next chapter and we'll want to give it a, a, we'll we'll want to give ourselves some time to like yeah. digest it. It is a very by itself. It's the hardest chapter I think because it's meant to be an annex, and so mm. it, it, it it has a different. Uh, well, we'll talk about it when we get there. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you can always find me on Twitter at tadkins six one three and. Uh, you can find Theory Talk at um, at, at, at your favorite podcast uh, application. Um, also, we have a, a Patreon page. You can send us money, uh, but you should send Machinic Unhappy or <laughs> Conscious Happy Hour. You should send them money first and get their content. Uh, and last but not least, I um, I'll, I'll I want to hear Alfonso's goodbyes, and then I'm gonna wrap it up, and you guys can.
0: Keep talking too if you want well hey also didn't you had a don't don't you have a simon doan simon doan piece oh well yeah translation you're right so next month july 14th uh
1: i mentioned it in passing but next month july 14th uh, 14th, the two volumes of simon Doan's individuation in light of conditions of form and information will hit bookshelves near you it's by university of minnesota press it's gonna be in two volumes. Um, the first volume is the dissertation proper and the second volume is, uh, is supplementary text, including a very interesting and rigorous history of philosophy. So uh, both volumes are worth picking up and hopefully in the future, uh, maybe, the th- maybe the three of us, including DC, we can we can talk about it uh, at, at some point. That's a lot more material we can go through. So, uh, oh, you know, sure. gauntlet thrown. <laughs>
2: All right. Cool. Yeah, man. Definitely. Thank you guys for, for having me on. It's been, it's been definitely a real treat just sort of getting into the, the podcast circuit. So, so it's been a real, uh, a real good, good ride so far. So everybody should definitely, uh, check out this, this podcast machine Gun unconscious happy hour. whose podcast is, is phenomenal. Um, you know, every week, you know, I'm hearing from people that I wouldn't necessarily have had, had access to, um, otherwise. So, I mean, you know, I'm getting i'm a i'm a little bit of an, of an older guy, so you know, trying uh, to stay. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so trying to tra- trying to stay in touch with you know everything that's going on with you know my milieu and you know and, and the new everything that's happening um, in the world now with all, with the younger generation. You know, it's, it's it can be difficult to manage sometimes. So, Coop, you definitely help with that, um, keeping me abreast of all sorts of stuff. <laughs> so it's awesome. Um, also Taylor your your podcast uh, theory talk is, is awesome uh, you know I'm always learning phenomenal stuff from you guys so both of you guys you know just just keep on keep on doing what you're doing um,
1: hey, hey man I think uh, you're a natural by the way so you should think about you know
3: yeah. put that idea out there <laughs> hey, we, could, we could use we could
1: use your voice uh, uh, more so don't sell yourself so sure I, I know that you have Lots to give,
2: but continue. Sorry. Guys, you know, I'll definitely think about it. If you're looking for me, you can find me at theory and analysis all spelled out, dot word, dot .wordpress.com. Uh, on Twitter, you can find me at, at TheoryAnalysis. Um, yeah, I'm there. I'm around. So Awesome. So, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Well, we
1: have to do this again soon, guys. I'm going to Absolutely. log out here. Coop, as always, thanks. Alfonso. Thanks. I'm so uh, happy you you joined us today, and we appreciate you. And I'll I'll be talking to you guys later. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Sounds again. good. All right. Have a great day, guys. All right. You too. Thank you.
0: And then and then for me again, I'm trying to uh, hopefully get 60 more patrons before the end of the year. You can find me on Patreon.com at uh, www.patreon.com/slash m um, u h h. The Twitter feed at unconscioushh. And then Instagram as well at Unconscious HH. But this is going to be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. Signing off for the week. Cheers. All right. And I'm going to stop recording. All
1: right. Okay,
0: okay. okay. stop. This is the typical violence of...
1: Violent, because what happens there is a the murder of the queen the vanishing point of reality.
0: Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I mean is the following.
1: Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people
3: as in uh, block work orange.